Welcome to The Changemakers by Food Niche, a podcast that stories and insights of visionaries tackling some of the biggest challenges facing our food system. On this podcast, you will find interviews with innovators, scientists, advocates, policymakers, educators, and many more, all united by a common objective. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and challenged. Now join the show host, Dr. Julia Oleandro. Hello, everyone, and welcome. On this episode, we'll be sharing with you a conversation, a panel conversation that took place at the Food Niche Summit New York, uh, May 2023. You know, this conversation was focused on prioritizing sustainability and consumer well-being in global food innovation. There is a growing consumer focus on how to optimize health through nutrition while embracing sustainable food practices. On this panel, they discussed extensively how different brands can effectively balance both priorities in developing new, innovative, nourishing and tasty products. They shared success stories. They shared their challenges as well and all centered around bringing new products to the market that are better for humans and also for the environment. They also discussed key considerations and enablers for consumer acceptance and commercial viability for this product. The speakers for the session include Megan McClory, the Director of Innovation and R&D at Kraft Heinz, Kevin Bermosa, the EVP of Halef Farms, Matt Wise, the CEO of Ryan Snack, and Trish Thomas, the CEO and co-founder of Everybody Hit. Ladies and gentlemen, join me and enjoy this session from the past Food Niche Summit. Enjoy. everybody awake and the four of us talked earlier today and we would much rather have a conversation than talking heads so if anybody has a question can you just ask it as we go and we'll have a dialogue with the audience so um, the subject of wellness and sustainability is near and dear to all of our hearts but, but so often everybody has a different definition for the word so our first question I thought we'd go through the panel is how do you define um, wellness and how does your product directly like, live into that product for consumers? Megan, do you want to go first? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll go. Um, so I work for Kraft. Uh, I work for Kraft Heinz. It's a twenty-six billion uh, dollar global company. Um, we have over two hundred brands, and um, eight of those are over one billion dollar brands. Um, and is this a personal definition or more? Yeah, we can, you can give both. <laughs> um, you know, so from a sustainability perspective, obviously, want to see um, the uh, the future generations to be able to um, live in a, a healthy planet and live a healthy lives um, and and continue to have a healthy business along with um, healthy consumers. Um, and so how that kind of comes together for Kraft Heinz um, is with our environmental social governance um, commitments. Um, we have three pillars. We have a pillar around environmental stewardship, uh, responsible sourcing, um, and healthy living and community support. Um, that's kind of one pillar, so not four, it's three. 
Um, and uh, and I, I work a lot on um, our healthy living commitments um, and commitments around our nutritional profiles um, within our products. Um, we also are looking to reduce sodium and sugar in a lot of our products. And this can happen through things like renovations and innovations on our, on, um, our portfolio. Um, so that's really kind of how it's coming to life uh, for us. Um, but uh, really we see our consumers um, wanting to make choices um, within um, within the food uh, to be able to either prevent um, certain health outcomes, um, but also just to live healthier lives. Um, and with the kind of the scale of our portfolio, we're able to provide a lot of choices um, within that and really meet a lot of different dietary ha habits and patterns that people have and, and meet a lot of different objectives that they have within their diets. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thanks very much, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Matt Weiss. I'm the founder of Rhyme Snacks. Uh, like Kraft Heinz, we are a $26 billion company. <laughs> uh, we aspire, yes. Uh, so Rhyme is, uh, we make a line of whole food <coughs> snacks that harness the power of the peel. Uh, we take what is most commonly discarded of the fruit and elevate the humble peel to its rightful position, we think, as the star of the show. Uh, the rind of fruit uh, has the greatest concentration of nutrient density than any other part of the fruit. It's also true in root vegetables, nuts, and legumes. There's a reason why, uh, which we can get into, but basically, rind sits at this intersection of solving the problem of taking the most nutritious part of the fruit, which is also the most flavorful, in my opinion. That's why we zest uh, citrus on top of baked goods. Um, and enjoy a slice of orange on the side of an old-fashioned or a negroni. Um, and we take that to the next level by uh, making a snackable slice of fruit snacks. Um, and the way I like to describe it is, in a world where so much is, what is the special sauce? What is the added ingredient? What is the magic dust or powder that you put in your product that makes it so functional or you know, beneficial? For us, the secret ingredient is not something we add. It's precisely what we don't subtract. And that is Mother Nature's original packaging, which houses three times the fiber and up to four times the vitamin content. So that's how we define wellness. Awesome. Thanks. Kevin? Hi. How are you? Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm Kevin Benmoussa, EVP and CFO at Ale Farms. Ale Farms is an Israeli-based food technology company. Uh, we're one of the pioneers in cellular agriculture. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, the previous panel and it was named before on cultivated meat. Uh, we're able to create essentially animal-based product out of uh, live cells animals. Um, like, uh, also like Matt, we're also on our way to become a $20 million company very soon. Uh, and uh, look, for, in terms of, of, of wellness you know, and, and health, I, I would like to maybe take a slightly different approach, maybe thinking about food resiliency, right? It's also part of our mission and our um, raison d'etre, if you will, which is essentially trying to be a solution um, for providing alternative protein in a more sustainable way, in a more uh, resilient way. Uh, we talked a lot today and earlier about um, the population growing uh, very fast, and, and as we think about feeding the masses, and finding new ways and leveraging technology to provide um, 
new new ways for protein uh, through through technology, which in, it, which which we think is part of also health uh, and wellness uh, for, for the human and for the mass population. So that's really what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to do that in a very sustainable way. Obviously, the livestock um, conventional farming agriculture today. Um, as we know, it is, is not sustainable, and if you think about climate impact, if you think about um, uh, water resources and, and all the various resources needed from Earth to, uh, to actually farm. Um, so we're also trying to be part of the solution. Um, so that's who we are, and that's, I guess, how we think about wildlife. Awesome. And uh, in our company, everybody, we're trying to solve a problem for a specific part of the population, the 30% of the U.S. and the world that have special diets. And a special diet could be a medically mandated diet like food allergies, autoimmune disease, inflammatory conditions, or it could be a dietary preference, kosher, vegan, paleo, keto. So the one thing all of those people have in common is um, they find it really difficult to eat anytime you're eating with other people because we're all socially and emotionally excluded. So, so our attack on that was to make food that tasted so good that people would it without a special diet. So 70% of our customers don't have a special diet, but it's been really hard because for us, our biggest challenge was ingredients cost more because they're whole food ingredients, healthy fats, and we had to build our own manufacturing capabilities because there wasn't allergen-free manufacturing that we could access. So, so all of this wellness stuff sounds easy, but what have been the biggest challenges to you to deliver on that promise? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll use an example, real life example that um, commercialized last year. So um, we have a nutrition commitment to remove 60 million pounds of sugar from our food system. Um, and we are more than halfway there with uh, the recent renovation of our Capri Sun product. Um, so we um, substituted sugar using a monk fruit uh, juice concentrate with that. Um, and uh, kids love it. Um, it passed uh, during our consumer testing. Um, now that's come out in the market, we put it in front of um, several influencers, and um, I've gotten really great feedback from that. And it's, it's actively out in the market and performing well. Um, and really, some of the challenges around that were um, the ingredient selection. Um, there's a variety of different uh, sweetener options out there. It was really important for Capri Sun to have a natural sweetener system, um, but really to deliver the, the taste profile that um, the consumers were really expecting um, required some additional um, flavor work. So we had a lot of partnerships with um, the juice concentrate supplier, but also um, our flavor suppliers um, to be able to uh, deliver a profile that everyone enjoyed. Um, and then we had to really build the, um, the supply chain um, so, um, so that between the technology and building the supply chain, because this is a big product, we have to have uh, you know a lot and feel that the there's a robust supply chain that we can keep this product on, on the shelf um, and uh, and not have empty shelf space. Um, so that was several years in the making. So, so you know some of the key challenges are for us our products are established and they're out in the market already. People have expectations of the brand and what the product is delivering. Um, and we need to do it in a way with that we bring the consumer along um, on, on that journey with when we're going to evolve the product, the of how we're evolving it. Um, and, and we've talked a lot about taste, but taste is done there. Um, 
And so now we're in a place where um, you know parents don't feel quite as much guilt because we're 50% of the less sugar than the leading uh, juice um, brands out there, um, and kids are loving the taste for it. So. This been a piece of cake. Completely. <laughs> uh, zero challenges, only opportunities. Uh, look, I actually do. I do see far more opportunities, which may be challenges, you know, redefined. Uh, I actually think it's never been a better time to capture legitimate market share points from giants uh, in the food industry by winning on taste, by winning on differentiation, uh, innovation, and being able to speak directly to consumers. Um, and you don't have to build a huge D2C business to do it. You can actually win mind share relatively quickly um, through the quality of the evangelism of that by, you know, a select few people who really tell their friends and, and it builds. And while it does seem Herculean in retrospect, um, and you're always building, you know, I actually think uh, there's never been a better time to start a business in this industry and with an intent to make some change and to provide something different than, you know, what has been You know, decades with people thinking, well, you know, big food has my interest in mind, and that's the innovation that I see. It makes sense. I mean, nothing works that way. Everything has to start uh, from someone's original thought and uh, what they want to bring into existence. So, challenges abound. Um, I'm an unapologetic optimist, and I am extremely excited about the opportunities to build a, a whole line of products uh, that don't yet exist that I hope people will be, you know, talking about as essential to their lives and their pantries and their kitchens, uh, you know, years ago. Awesome. And Kevin, you're taking over the world. So that's been easy, right? Piece of cake. Um, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, for us also, a lot of challenges and opportunity for sure. But uh, I mean, we, since we're playing in the food technology field, I think for us, the key three um, I would say challenge or topic that already come about. It's not necessarily LF related, but really to the broader, broader industry and sector is around um, scale up. Obviously, how do you actually manage uh, to efficiently scale up? And we talked about price earlier, we talked about consumers, so that's, that's a big one. Regulatory, of course, uh, because novel foods um, will have to go through all the regulatory clearance, even though I would say that this is not any, anymore such a, uh, such a risk, right? It's a matter of time. And you see all the all the policies now throughout the world, every government, especially in the U.S., recognize the strategic um, aspects of pushing for food technologies. Um, so definitely, I mean, we've talked about uh, uh, the biomanufacturing and, and the executive order from President Biden last year and, and all the likes. You see countries like Singapore, Israel, that are really pushing the agenda for a more resilient and food security uh, prospect. So I think regulatory um, will, will come very soon. And, and lastly, consumer, right? So the consumer acceptance, which is a big, uh, the big one as well. We talked a lot about it today. Uh, how do you actually manage to um, not necessarily break the habits, but necessarily evolve habits, understand exactly what it is? We're very careful about um, educating the consumer, especially as we think about our business plans and when we start to be commercially ready. How do we talk to the consumers, explaining the product, explaining why it matters? Uh, 
I think there's a lot of, you know, when you come in with disruptive innovation, there's a lot of the consumer don't know what they don't know, right? So they, they, they cannot really understand what they don't have. Think about the iPhone, right? You didn't know you needed the iPhone until you actually have an iPhone, right? So that's in a similar fashion, you have to explain what it is and, and then the consumer will get there. But there's definitely a lot of willingness already shown around sustainability that, that we believe uh, will be key. And, and last but not least, I think I would agree to one of the former panel that said, um, to win consumers, uh, you have to actually, you know, think about the three big ones, which are price, quality, and taste. Right? You cannot compromise on those. And, and I think for us, this is this is key. But as you think about price and affordability, this will come over time. As you think about the cost reduction curve and, and getting to to the masses. So, so obviously, this is not a uh, like an overnight journey. It will take time, uh, but definitely a lot of opportunities ahead. And I think that. Uh, we talk a lot about sustainability, but then we also talk about wellness, and and these things can sometimes be at odds, just from available technology to the cost of materials and how you ship things. So, how do each of you and Kevin, you can go first, um, think about the intersection of sustainability and wellness? So, for us, we're building a larger. We have been able to keep up with demand since 2020, so we're building a larger factory to make it a carbon neutral factory and use electric ovens versus gas ovens. The electric ovens cost 25% more and 30% more to operate. Unless we are in the Grove, New York region and we were using hydropower from Niagara Falls, in which case that would make a lot of sense. But um, so, so I think that sometimes, you know, when you try to do both at the same time, it makes it equally challenging. So. Like for us, we've got it one problem at a time. The first was, how do you make delicious food free of the top 14 allergens in corn? Check. How do you produce it at scale? Check. Now it's how do we make it so that we have less than the carbon footprint in the process? So how are you addressing the intersection of that? Or do you think the two ideas even go together? No, it's, it's a great question, Trish. I think this is, this is the balance, right? It's a balancing act. Um, as you think about the choice, especially in my seat at the CFO, thinking about uh, how do you make the business more sustainable, economically viable, but also making sure you hit more sustainability goals. So that's really uh, key here. Before us, one of the edge we have is we're really trying to embed sustainability as part of who we are and as we design the business, right? So I think one of the edge versus the maybe a larger organization, and you see all the big CPGs today, to take an example, trying to now twist and change their supply chain and their manufacturing footprint to get into the sustainability, to get to net zero, right? I think we don't have all that legacy already, so we can build from the ground up in a sustainable way. So I think that's, that's one way to think about it. Then there's a cost aspect to it. How do we do this effectively? Uh, because there's always trade-offs as to if you want to use renewable energy, if you think about different ways to uh, to treat your water, et cetera, et cetera. So there's always a cost to it. Um, so so again, I think that that's that. As far as Alec Farm is concerned, we're the only one actually you know, being very clear about uh, the goal and the ambition. Um, so we've set that out there. We want to be net zero, phase one and two by 2025, and phase three by 2030. Um, so we're really working hard on the roadmap as we start scaling up um, to hit those goals as well. So again, I think it is it is a very fine balance that you have to navigate, um, and and that's the nature of what we're trying to do: really working with the operational team, working with the sustainability team, etc. Okay, Matt. Yeah, I know. I think that is the important question to be asking, which is like, you know, why can't both of these coexist and solve the same problem? And I certainly think that they can. I think it's, it's amazing to me, obviously, we live in an age of abundance, 
and exceptional capabilities, driverless cars, potentially interplanetary exploration, paying with your face, and yet we waste, you know, 40% uh, of all food that is produced, um, much of that being perfectly edible, right, in, in the case of the, our business and what we source. And so the opportunity to reframe and reorient what is often considered a discarded food scrap um, and capturing far more nutrition, creating a tasty snack that drives repeat, uh, you know, it is so unnerving to me and I think to many others that against all this abundance and the food waste situation, we also have 35 million households that uh, identify as nutrition and food insecure. And when you just think about the juice industry and half of an orange is peel and pith and the other half is juice, of the oranges come in the front door and go out the back door as spent rinds. And that is a cost center for juice manufacturers. They pay companies to cart that away to feed livestock at a time when we have such nutrition insecurity right here at home. So clearly there is a lot of work to do, but there is a way to do it that is not only is it not mutually exclusive, they work hand in hand, um, at least as we confront taking product that is now, you know, the end of one supply chain, in the case of us, upcycled fruit, becoming the beginning of an entirely new supply chain. So it's the right question to be asking. I think there's some really amazing unlocks and answers that are quite obvious that nobody has really tackled or found pathways of doing things differently, um, which is, you know, what we endeavor to do. And Megan, you, you're doing it globally, so I mean, how, how do you yeah. intersect wellness and sustainability together? Yeah, so we have a net zero commitment to be net zero by 2050 and 50% reduction by 2030, which is a huge goal. Um, and we know a lot of that comes from our supply chain, and you kind of spoke to having established supply chains makes it even more challenging, which is definitely the case. Um, and so we know there's a lot of work to be done within the supply chain and the agricultural systems. Um, but also with our food products and, um, you know, sitting within an R&D organization, that's where my mind immediately goes to is, you know, what, what, how do some of these products need to evolve and what, is, what do the formulations need to look like in the future to meet those goals? Um, and, uh, you know, the good thing is, is we already have um, global nutrition targets set for our company. Um, I, I really enjoyed Kate talked um, this morning about the food standards that are set within New York City because I think that type of governance really helps when you're working against um, things that might have competing priorities. And so as we embark upon the journey for net zero, um, having those uh, nutrition targets and standards for us helps um, guide that decision making, um, helps kind of keep us honest to say we won't trade this off. You know, we want 85% of our portfolio to be within those, um, that nutrition profile that we've set. So, you know, as we embark upon um, evolving our portfolio for maybe something more like a net zero commitment um, around the environmental pillar, um, that we're not making those trade-offs to negatively impact the, the nutritional profile. Um, but also we're looking at those products of how do we continue to deliver more positive nutrition as well. Um, internationally, I'm not sure how people 
big eaters of beans on toast, um, but Heinz is a massive internationally um, and has a really fantastic platform for more sustainable types of protein, that whole food, um, mineral delivery, um, and I think that has a great example of how they've expanded that brand um, beyond beans on toast into um, other types of um, meat, or, uh, beans, burgers, nuggets, um, one dish meals, soups, um, meat replicas, uh, minced meats. Um, so they've really started to expand that to kind of live the power of beans, but I think it has a great intersection between nutrition and, and hitting that sustainability side. So um, so I think some of it's in, in the governance, especially when you have a really big company, you have like 40,000 employees. So, you know, you have to have kind of have some of these things really set and communicated to your employees um, so that they can really live by those guardrails. And as Tim talked about, sometimes your employees, we forget about the wellness of them. I mean, what we've seen is 85% um, of our companies uh, are people of color. Our, most of our production team has been in the judicial system or homeless hadn't worked for two years before they worked for us and what we found is we were giving them education on food allergies and and gluten as part of their training for work and what we saw was disease rates go down because no one had ever talked to them about that before like oh that's why my stomach hurts that's why I have a rash that's why my aunt is always sick and so we've seen a population of employees actually like improve their lives by changing their diet just by making them aware it wasn't a goal we set out to do we just saw it tim's raising people out of poverty in madagascar and rebuilding the forest but have you seen a crossover between your employees in wellness and sustainability just by them coming to work every day and i'll make that's a big question for forty thousand employees so we'll let matt start with that one uh, we have eight so uh, <laughs> are you healthy yeah, no, everyone eats Doritos. Um, yeah, well, uh, it's actually, yes, it's, it, there's some, it self-selects to some degree. We're a healthy snack startup on a mission. So, you know, we attracted a certain, uh, you know, type of, of uh, you know, employee to join the, join the team. Um, where just to uh, take that one step further, you know, we launched an initiative, which I think is unusual for an upstart brand who has a chip on their shoulder and is, you know, feels like they're at the top of the first inning. But it was important to us at the start of COVID when access to grocery stores, farmers markets, everything was, was uh, less and less, that we kicked off a school nutrition program that we as Rind that continues to this day, where basically children in underserved communities that are reliant on the public school system for their meals, both breakfast and lunch, um, their needs don't change come Friday. They still need those healthy meals on Saturday and Sunday, but they're not in school. And so it was important to do, to bring Rind to distribution events on Friday uh, Fridays throughout the markets that we serve to these public school children and their families and provide and show to them what a real fruit snack can be and nothing against roll-ups uh, which is very interesting to hear the you know the craze of roll-ups in Israel but I think so many kids are being brought up without even understanding that you can eat the skin of a fruit 
right? Or whether or not they've even tried a kiwi, let alone having the, the skin of the kiwi. And so it, it's been gratifying and important to provide a future generation of consumers an awareness of real whole snacking that includes this nutrient-rich outer layer and that doesn't glow neon in the marketplace and that the fruit flavors in a bag of Skittles don't really have fruit in them and that you really haven't tried uh, a fruit. So it's, that is how we are driving wellness sort of in the communities that we serve uh, because our customers get it, right? And uh, certainly our employees get it, but there are so many youngsters who do not have the advantages um, you know, that, that others do and for whom their only exposure to fruit has been sort of a candy-fied version. And it's important to sort of bring that back to, you know, authenticity and real. Absolutely. I think for us as well, I mean, it's obviously we don't have a product market just yet, right? But I think sustainability is a big angle uh, for people also joining us, but also being part of the mission. What I would say is on, on that related topic, and I know we talked about sustainability and then how do we deal with that and how do we strike balances also, is you know, how do you, how, how do you make the how do you make the choices between doing wrong or the right thing, but it always comes back to the consumers. So whether it's employee or consumers, we talked about it earlier, is you know, that's the consumer care. Okay? And how do you make sure you educate the consumer so that you actually understand the situation and then they can actually embed that in his or her choices when it relates to food, right? So I think that that's a big, that's a big element of it. Um, we talked about price uh, earlier as well. And to me, that's also a key uh, element in any company right now, trying to integrate sustainability, trying to be real about what they do, but also it has some cost implication and some price implication. So how do we educate the consumer about all of this? Uh, and it starts with employee as well. So, so I think to us, it's a really, really important uh, you know, element that we're trying to, to deal with. And, and it's also important not to uh, just talk about sustainability. It's a big buzzword, right? But what do we actually do about it? Uh, and I think for us, again, it's really trying to, to your point, make it embedded, trying to embed it into our operation, trying to embed it into our scale from the get-go. So it just doesn't become a check the box exercise that we'll have to do down the road, right? So, and and it's a tricky exercise, right? It's, it's not easy, uh, but but we think it is it is critical to do. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna be able to address all forty thousand people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, broadly speaking, especially during the pandemic, um, you know, out in our manufacturing facilities, um, all of those, you know. It is actually within R and D too. We are considered essential workers, um, and we have people going into manufacturing facilities every single day to keep product on the shelf. So, um, obviously, health and safety of our employees was paramount. We took very good care of them. Um, there were not significant outbreaks. I mean, things happen, but um, you know, really taking a lot of precaution with PPE and you know, social distancing, and, and that was very prevalent even. I would continue to go into our R&D center um, because we had uh, work that needed to continue and, and, and kept doing that. You know, from a community impact perspective, I'll say that um, we have a foundation and we've provided over 400 million meals um, through that foundation and, and a good portion of that did occur during the pandemic. Um, and our goal is to get to 1 billion by 2025 and, and we're well that way. We use a partner um, called Rise Against Hunger, and we do food pack events as well. 
Um, so that, that engages our employees and, and we're certainly um, giving back through that way, but then also um, benefiting communities that um, leverage those foods in you know, um, developing nations where um, they can be in schools and kids are more motivated to go to school and learn um, through uh, getting those products. Um, the other thing I'll also say just from like a, um, that I've noticed in the last couple of years, especially returning back to work after um, the pandemic and being in the office more is uh, mental health has been um, a much bigger uh, conversation point. We have established mental health first aiders. Um, we have access to apps like our Calm app and um, anxiety apps and better sleep apps. Um, so really leveraging um, application technology to help our employees as well. Um, so seeing that. Um, come through in the workplace also. Awesome. Um, Mark Andreessen wrote a book that was called uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And so, so much of what we talked about today is really hard things, right? And whether it's proving that you could make a certain kind of food taste good that everyone said you couldn't, trying to figure out how to manufacture it at scale, upcycling and changing diets and nutrition, reproducing the impossible, or trying to turn a Titanic to be a healthy food company. And so I would say, um, we've talked a lot. Does anybody else have any examples to share on how they're working on the intersection between wellness and sustainability or one of the others? It's after lunch. It's too hard of a topic. Uh -huh. Yes. So were you asking for a question or a statement about our position on that? Either or. Well, so um, my company, Ready Farms, and we're an indoor hydroponic vertical farm with a plant-based and sustainability-based concept, including the plant-based restaurant and the 501c3 education component. And so sustainability, in my opinion, is um, all about locality. I think that one of the problems with sustainability is that all the mass conglomerations of large companies created very, very intense uses, which hurts the planet creates large shipping, which also has a large carbon footprint. And, you know, I'd love to hear the opinions of the panelists about this uh, alignment between locality and sustainability. Thanks. Yeah, I, I can take a shot at that. Um, actually, it's, that's a great point. Um, and, and I know there's some retailers here in the audience, but, you know, speaking the, the other day, a couple of months ago, uh, around this specific topic. And for us, for example, at other forums, we think that we could help with that. And you mentioned locality, and what if you could create by a farm so you could actually create a product and be much closer to your, your end consumers, right? So you don't have to actually go through the whole entire supply chain and shipping and freight and all of that. So that's definitely something that could be enabled through technology, you potentially partnership with retailers. Uh, if you think about, we talked about COVID, um, if you remember like during those COVID years, um, all the empty shelves um, because of all the supply chain disruption, as a matter of fact, some of the key products you could find were, uh, were plant-based, right? Because uh, th there was a product you could find on shelf that was uh, able. So I think that if we can actually partner with retailers, get to much closer production sites, and get to the consumer in a much faster way, and efficient way, that could solve for that, and at the same time, could be very beneficial from a sustainability point of view. So I completely agree, that's something that we'd like to also explore in partnership with, uh, with the ecosystem. Agree. I think driving efficiencies, you know, it's disingenuous to create a product that has some sustainable bona fides, but it's crossed the country, you know, twice in single use plastic packaging. And, you know, but the contents in the bag are delicious and sustainable. So I think there's a ton of work to be done. Uh, 
and I do think it makes a lot of sense to be as efficient as possible uh, from a footprint standpoint, which accrues naturally to the business and the profits under the business. And so in the case of fruit, and there is a large secondary market for the type of fruit that we are, um, you know, that we are purchasing and then dehydrating, the vast majority of which is in California's Central Valley, kind of the fruit salad bowl of the country. Uh, the problem is it's in California. So it's a very expensive state, you know, back to the trade-off between pricing, et cetera. Uh, it can be a very expensive state to produce the product. Um, what we have found, which is sort of a um, middle of the road solution, is we were packing in East Coast facilities from a product that the raw material was acquired in, in the West. And we have explored, and it's why you see all these logistics companies, warehouse companies, et cetera, comands popping up in Idaho, in Nevada, in Arizona. Um, and sure enough, we are we work with, you know, an incredible coman who's our, our largest right outside of Boise. So between Washington State with the production of apples, Central Valley with the production of citrus, and kiwis, and peaches for us, uh, having that all dehydrated uh, close to the source and then finished goods made in Idaho uh, makes this a much more efficient process than it had been before. And so, um, but it made good business sense as well. I think that was really important. Um, I think it's, a, it's more of a corollary to your question. And I came up on an earlier panel um, with a gentleman uh, who's a professor here in nanotechnology around smart packaging, because I really do think that is going to be, if, if, if and when that, becomes more of a realistic problem solved at the right cost. All of these companies that are, in my, my own included, that are packaging really healthy, upcycled products that would otherwise perhaps have gone to waste, uh, but putting it in plastic packaging is, um, you know, it is not, it, it doesn't sit well with me, it doesn't sit well with the consumer and it needs to change. And so that is the frontier that I'd be most excited about, you know, to hear more opportunities around creating packaging that both works and solves the problem, keeping moisture out if it's dehydrated, but also, um, you know, contributes to the world as opposed to um, takes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think local definitely, it's, it's a challenge because uh, we're a bigger food company, um, and our infrastructure is not necessarily set up in a way to leverage, you know, local sources. Um, but it definitely has a place. Um, and I think one thing I'll say, too, is we try to look at where the data is at as well. Um, from a sustainability impact perspective, um, one of the data sources we look at is we're, we're piloting a tool from a startup called How Good. Um, they have a lattice tool. Um, which is a sustainability formula impact tool. Um, and we're a couple years into that pilot. Um, and, you know, something that that data really shows is, while transportation is important um, and, and how far it's traveling, the biggest impacts tend to come from the agricultural practices. And so if we're going to influence anything, um, probably, we're probably going to be going to those um, elements first, making sure that we're really impacting um, the biggest uh, thing that we can, um, which would be around influencing and partnering with 
suppliers and, and agricultural um, systems to make sure that we're continuing to um, make that that impact. So, and then for us, I think it's been about, and then we'll do another question, is um, being forward-looking and developing relationships in other places. So we're in Chicago. We had to prove out our manufacturing model in Chicago. And then Jen's here from Grow New York, but through the Grow New York program, we have developed relationships with Empire State Development in New York. I can probably tell you more about economic development incentives in New York than I can Illinois, knowing that once we prove it out in Chicago, we could expand to the East Coast and then not only use what we've learned about economic development in the Midwest and in New York to then do the same thing on the West Coast. So for us, we're looking at mid-sized manufacturing solutions and workforce development solutions that can be replicated in other areas of the country versus just getting bigger where we are. And while we might be a couple years out from that, we're putting together the relationships and the people and the economic development incentives to be able to pull those things into play way earlier than somebody would expect. And then you had another question? Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, my name is Ben Dixon. I uh, work in regenerative agriculture. And um, uh, so I appreciate your comments about um, changing the, the food supply. And I agree with that. Um, one of our biggest challenges is trying to uh, figure out how to communicate uh, the benefits of regenerative agriculture to uh, the consumer. And um, the benefits change. Each of you has you know, meaningful communication challenges in the lab room or trying to convince people to keep running and, and uh, you know, a big established company maybe with a little bit of sugar involved. Um, what are the best ways you guys have, uh, have worked on to, to communicate the benefits of your products directly to consumers? Start. I actually think in the case of our product, it's quite intuitive. <laughs> the, the name sort of does a lot of the work for us in terms of the education. So, um, and it's for the most part, single ingredient fruit. I also think the best thing anyone can do to help, you know, create the wind at your back uh, in winning the consumer is to pick a market with really big secular trends. And in the case of uh, whole fruit snacking or whole food snacking period, I think we're on the right side of that uh, equation where consumers, I think, have embraced product that is a little bit wonky or imperfect or cosmetic imperfect because they know it's real versus something that is overly processed and completely, you know, homogenous with everything else coming off the line where it's likely it's it's highly you know it's been highly engineered it may taste delicious but you know clearly you can't see or pronounce the ingredients um, and then the other thing i would just say is i think being on the right side of taste preferences which you kind of have to make some bets and i believe based on you know what i see in generational change that consumers are moving away from super sweet and cloyingly sweet and toward tangy, tart, 
you see a lot of sour innovation. I think bittersweet. Um, you know, I see my kids putting hot sauce and sriracha on everything, ice cream, eggs. I'm like, what's going on? And, you know, when I look back at what I grew up in school, it was Capri Sun and Lunchables. It's still, it's still <laughs> right? No, but it's like everything is extreme. And there's ways to do that and find that in the, in the plant community without overly processed things, um, you know, lemon chips, grapefruit chips, things like that, that, you know, we're working on that embrace the sour because we think that is where the puck is going as far as consumer taste profiles. When I just think of generational change 25 years from now. Um, so I hope that answered your question, but basically picking giant markets with a lot of wind and picking something that doesn't require a huge educational lift that, the name, the concept is sort of self-evident. And for us, it was, we really, we took years to understand the consumer problem. And if, if we hadn't taken that time, we would have gotten it wrong. We would have just been making food free of allergens. But it was when we got to the point that the, that the real pain point was emotional and being socially and emotionally excluded. They changed everything because we had to all of a sudden raise the bar that we had to just make food that tasted great that also happened to be free from the top 14 allergens in corn. Because if we couldn't make something that everybody wanted to eat, it wouldn't solve the problem for other people. So our other innovation is people with special diets spend a year of their life reading food labels. So we just put the ingredients on the front. So we knew that if you said gluten-free or allergen-free too big, what it signaled to everybody was this was going to be free from taste. This was not going to taste good. So um, it says very small on our packaging, gluten-free or free from, but for the people like me that need to know everything they eat, the ingredients are in big letters. So, so I think taking the time to understand the consumer issue that you're solving, because in regenerative farming, I, I, have, I teach entrepreneurship at Northwestern, so I deal with a lot of young people, and they really care about regenerative agriculture. I mean, they really care. The future is in... Um, regenerative agriculture, sustainability, health, college kids care. But um, for us as the entrepreneurs, it's hard to access it. Like, how do I find you? How do I, how do I prioritize my crops versus crafting I need regenerative oats and they're going to get it before I am. Then what I would say, uh, as far as we're concerned, it would be a different setting, but for us, it's all about explaining that, hey, yes, it's, it's technology-driven, but it's also the evolution of agriculture in a way. So for a thousand years, we were able to farm animals and cows to meat. Today, we're farming cells, and that's really what we're doing. So it's more of an evolution than just something new that is coming up. So it's all about the education of what the product is and what the technology is about. There's also an aspect of health, uh, about like being able to produce uh, a product that is in a much more uh, controlled environment that can actually help mitigate for some of the disease and for food, food illness, uh, foodborne disease that could, uh, that could come out of the processes. Um, so all of that for us is also a way to explain the consumer as to why you should, you should embrace this, those trends and then why this is something that is a continuation of, of what we see from a farming point of view. I think all of that for sure, uh, and by the way, I would say like, you know, if you look at every food today, in some shape or form, um, it, it is you know, going through that at some point. You know, if you think about uh, you know, processed food, obviously, dairy, yogurt, beer, you name it. I mean, at some point. So it's not so much different in a way. So it's all about explaining how the product is being made and what the product stands for. That's really how we go about it. 
think we're out of time, but Megan, you want to add something? I'll add quickly. Um, you know, I think we take a lot of label transparency approach. So facts up front, smart label, um, uh, absence of negatives. So like no, no, no claims, preference of positives. So like daily values, good source of protein. So those are, we really try to put those front forward, especially when we have portfolio choices. So people can really pick and choose okay, this is original ketchup, this is my no sugar added, this is my no salt, this is my organic. Um, be very clear there. But then there's other choices we make at a brand level, like Capri Sun, we shouted from the rooftops. We probably will do some sodium reductions that we don't talk about very broadly. Um, and then I think kind of just another area on the forefront, which we don't have all figured out, is um, environmental labeling. So consumers don't really understand, like, oh, if I put 32, you know, kilograms of carbon equivalents on this versus three, is that good? Is that bad? They have no reference point. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot to a work to be done in that space. So, thank you. Anything else? I think we're out of time. So. I think there's definitely consumer education and just better mileposts of uh, being able to get reference points. I think you have a pretty good understanding of like what high sugar is, what added sugar is. Like you start to under to develop that understanding, and I think through consumer education, you can slowly get there to say like so they have that reference point of like oh that's a really high carbon load. Like I get that's probably more. You know, detrimental rather than regenerative. So, and I would just add to that, that also positive claims front of pack, uh, combining both of those answers, where you're not necessarily speaking to the taste, but you're speaking to the mission, the purpose, which I think can create emotional connections to brands and products. Like, you know, by consuming you know these snacks, you're helping eliminate a million pounds of edible peels from going to food waste, or you've seen it with you know Tom's shoes or you know, donate, buy a pair, we donate a pair to somebody in your bonus socks. So I think mission is also very powerful in, frankly, in advertising and marketing that, you know, there's a, in the case of all of our products, there's a sustainability reason for being to what we do and that you can be a participant in the fight. Thank you. Thank you.